Welcome to BrainBeat, a podcast series featuring discussions with experts in brain health and function, brought to you by the National Academy of Neuropsychology Foundation. I'm Dr. Heidi Rossetti, and our guest today is Jennifer Reuter. Jennifer is currently the director of Blue Lotus Kailua Wellness Studio on the island of Oahu, Hawaii. She is an expert in meditation and yoga with over 20 years of experience leading yoga teacher training certificate programs, meditation immersions, yoga and meditation retreats, monthly meditation meetups, and weekly yoga and meditation classes. So join us for our conversation about mindfulness and meditation and its relationship to how we operate. Welcome, Jen. Thank you, Heidi. Okay, well, maybe we can start with hearing a little bit about your personal journey in this area. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I I, uh, discovered yoga in 1998. I was working for the Navy as an engineer and was not feeling fulfilled. In fact, I was very depressed, frustrated, anxious, extremely stressed, the feeling of being trapped. And I began to question my own existence. And I basically done what I felt society wanted me to do, which was go to school, uh, work hard, get a degree, get the job. And so dutiful, I checked off all those things on my list, but like many other young adults and maybe some older adults, I didn't know myself. I never had that chance to get to know who I was. And so doing what I thought, quote, was the right thing was literally sucking the joy right out of my life. And it was then that I discovered yoga and a whole new world began to open up for me. And that world included a larger perspective than my smaller self. I had always felt so alone and self-absorbed with my suffering, thinking there was just no way out of it. But then it was like through the teachings of yoga, I began to understand that I wasn't alone and just being human means there's suffering. As the Buddha points out in his first noble truth, that suffering is inevitable and unavoidable. It wasn't just the Buddha, but a lot of the world's wisdom traditions points to this suffering. And a lot of the causes are ignorance and selfish desires. So this yoga world that opened up to me, I knew nothing about, and I was so eager to learn this knowledge. And in my heart, I felt that it held the key to a lot of these answers I was looking for answers that would help combat my own stresses, my own anxieties. And it was the knowledge, the tools, and this tried and tested wisdom that was passed down literally for thousands of years that opened up for me. So in a nutshell, one thing led to the next. And by 2000, I did my first of many yoga and meditation trainings which took me all over the world, India, Bali, Mexico, all over the mainland. 22 years later, (laughs) I'm here still learning, still practicing, still inspired. And I have to say that the real game changer in this field was, and still is, my meditation practice, which I began in 2008, formal meditation training in the lineage of Kashmir Shaivism. I spent about 10 years 
going deep with that practice. And then during the pandemic, I enrolled in a two-year mindfulness program with Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. This meditation, I've been able to uncover and reclaim lost places of myself. I've been able to develop a greater understanding, appreciation, and compassion for my myself as well. And experientially, I just feel this interconnection uh, with others, the planet, this moment, how it's all woven together, and my sense of belonging to it. And this is that larger perspective that I've been able to taste and explore outside my little self. So I'm really grateful to my teachers that have come through my life, these teachings and these practices, because I've seen within my own life that peace of mind that comes naturally when we have the tools and strategies to build resiliency, self-regulate, and build more congruency with life, build more harmony. So fascinating. What a journey. As you were talking, I was thinking it would be helpful to talk a little bit about what is the difference between meditation and mindfulness? Should those terms be used interchangeably? And are there other terms that you find yourself, you know, kind of often clarifying for people? So both of these words, I feel are loaded with meaning and nuance, and they're often overused a lot of times without fully appreciating their context and meaning. And so just starting with the word mindfulness, and I used to do this too, so I can totally relate. <laughs> People say, you know, can you be a little more mindful? And on some level, what they're trying to say is, hey, can you pay attention to what you're doing? And that isn't completely wrong. But when one studies mindfulness, one learns that paying attention is only half of the practice. And that's the easy part. The other half of mindfulness is, is the how. How are we paying attention? And it's invoking quality of our heart to, as we're paying attention, invoke kindness, friendliness, non-judgment, receptive. So can you pay attention without being critical? Really listening, like listening with all the cells of your body, listening with your heart. And I love Jack Cornfield's definition. He says, mindfulness is a non-judgment, caring attention here and now. And it's all helpful. It's all helpful with your work, with your kids, with your body. So mindfulness helps us shift from states that are reactive and where we might feel caught up to states that are receptive and freeing. And it's that freedom when we can just be with what is that the body tends to relax more when we're caught up and reacting, even mildly, the judgments and rejection that often follow result in a kinesthetic response in our body. So a tightening, a bracing a gripping in our neck or it's our low back or our jaw. So mindfulness is this witnessing. It's a quality of consciousness that is kind, receptive, acknowledging what's happening without getting entangled in it. And once we become present and we can sense and feel into the moment, we can learn from it. And that's the juice. So this is what I love about this practice is when we're present with things as they are, 
rather than how we wish them to be when we want life to be different. And there's that internal struggle against reality. It's very taxing. It's very difficult on the mind and body. So mindfulness is the practice of how we can stay open and hold the moment longer. It doesn't mean that we have to like it or agree with it, but the resistance towards it, it can be deleterious. And so how we can lean in and keep learning how it's always changing and the nature of life is impermanence. Feelings, emotions, when we sit with them, they have about a shelf life of 15 to 30 seconds. So if we can watch them as they arise, unfold and pass away, it really becomes a skill in motion. And that's, that's looking at mindfulness. And then we have this word meditation, which is another loaded word, a lot of meaning. And we're like in the world of semantics. But just to give an example, people tell me that they meditate when they surf. I live in Hawaii. So a lot of surfers are mm -hmm. saying, oh, I, I meditate when I'm on the wave. Or some people love running. And I go, when I run, I meditate or painting or dancing. And again, that's just not wrong. What, what I've come to understand, and it is my interpretation on this word, what in this context people are describing is a feeling of mindfulness and a feeling of yoga which I'll back up in a moment, but the eyes are open, they're paying attention and they're receptive. They're totally immersed in what it is they're doing. And the meaning of yoga is this experience of being one with what is happening. Unfortunately, I call it the karma, the karma of the West is that yoga is often depicted and portrayed too many times as a body being very flexible, beautiful, and contorted into some shape. And the mm -hmm. kickback, you know, yeah, the kickback is people, when I invite people to do a yoga class, their reaction to me is, oh, I know, I, I can't touch my toes. You know, and then I have to say, well, the essence of yoga is not how bendy you are, but it's how possible it is for the mind and body and breath to join together in a moment. And when that occurs, there's a sense of being here and now, and we've all had it. So this sense when we're really integrated in the moment, in the here and now can be mind-blowing. And it's certainly the case that we've all shared where we're a lot of times in nature watching the sun come up, or it's just so surreal. We have these sayings that time stood still. Or, it, wow, it just took my breath away. And even athletes in a game, when they find themselves at one in that play, my favorite is when I, in December, when I go see the Nutcracker and I watch the Sugar Plum Fairy come out and she is just dancing that dance. And she's so integrated in the moment with her breath and her body. She actually imports the audience with her. I mean, we're all with her in that moment and no one's thinking about, the to-do list. And it's these magical moments where the one who is experiencing, or the, we could say the experiencer dissolves into the experience itself. And in that moment, there's wholeness. There's a feeling that hmm, there's nothing I need to do 
There's nowhere I need to be. There's nothing I need to know that will make me any better than I already am. And this is waking up to our best self. And fundamentally, this is the goal of meditation is to discover and cultivate more of that wholeness that's always with us. It's always the case. It's just kind of covered over. And so with that being said, you know, we have these states that we kind of fall into and activities where if you're lucky, you like, wow, you have that moment where time stood still, but then there's formal and traditional meditation now where we're, we're actually doing a practice. It's, there's an anchor, there's a focal point, and we're coming back over and over to that anchor. There's different categories of meditation that can include devotional practices, like focusing on love and inspiration. This would be prayer, worship, singing, in which the idea and experience is to be one with that which you're devoted to. There's a contemplation is another category of meditation in which you take sacred passages of scripture or prayer or words. It could even be a theme like gratitude or suffering, and you place it in the mind and heart and reflect on it. And then there are many categories of concentration, visual concentrations like a candle flame, an image, a mandala, and lots of ways that you can concentrate with the eyes closed or downcast. And that could include breath, a mantra, sound, body sensations. But here's the thing is that all of them require repetition thousands and thousands of times. Mm-hmm. And so the mind not only becomes focused, but quiet and peaceful, directed. And it takes a lot of work over and over. Gandhi said it best. He called it blessed monotony. That's <laughs> a, what a rep- great term. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> the repetition of this. So there are a lot of strategies. And it's what ideally is we want to find the one that works for us. But here's a little side note I want to emphasize is we don't want to be addicted to the strategy because for many of us, there's this part of our mental conditioning, especially in the West, where we're overachievers and we've been taught to do it and do it well. Like you're going to do this thing and you're going to do it 100%. You're going to concentrate work hard and muscle this. And with meditation and your strategy, whatever tool you're using, it's to let go of the striver, the one that wants to do, relax back and learn to stop that controlling where the ego thinks it has this. And so if you can kind of relax back with your technique, that's when it gets really good. That takes a lot of practice. That's really slippery but this is the practice. So when we talk about now formal meditation, it's okay, taking a seat in the middle of your own life for a designated amount of time, five minutes, 10 minutes, 30, practicing being still and using that anchor that we resonate with so that our attention can keep coming back. I often say it's slippery because you're rubbing up against your own thoughts, your stories, beliefs, convictions. And here we integrate mindfulness where we have the open-eyed mindfulness, like we do the dishes, we're taking a walk, 
we're with another and we're practicing paying attention with that non-judgment receptivity. Same thing now in our own practice as we take our seat, can we be with our, our stories, which can be very frictional? Can we be there receptive, curious and kind and friendly and compassionate to ourselves? And so this is where the mindfulness and the meditation can join together. So these are the kind of nuances and the differences of that, of these practices. Yes, for sure. So nuanced and multi-layered. And I can imagine how it would feel very unnatural in the beginning to do something that really is natural, if that makes (laughs) sense, you know, (laughs) but I wanted to touch on the concept of contemplative neuroscience and that as a field of research that focuses on changes in the brain or body as a result, contemplative practices like you just outlined, meditation and yoga and so forth. Can you talk a bit about what we know about the relationship of those techniques with brain structure or cognition? Yeah, I love this field. I geek out on the science. It's so exciting. (laughs) You're in the right place. The science isn't enough to make us run to our meditation cushion. I I don't know what is. This is, it's really exciting because the question that's on everyone's mind in this field is what is the body-mind capable of with meditation training? And so on the neurological level, the answers are still coming in. But what is known is that meditation is a trigger for neuroplasticity. It's helping one to improve resiliency, attention, compassion, empathy, kindness. And we know now, despite our age, brains can continually change their structure and pathways. And so we have positive and negative neuroplasticity. And the positive neuroplasticity, we know brain networks that are helping us in our life to be able to adapt. And then the negative neuroplasticity, uh, the networks working against us that impede life and make us feel stuck. So meditations installing new ways to train the brain that help us to say yes to life, simultaneously combating the deleterious natures of stress. And I want to point towards the Sarah Laser studies conducted with Mass General and Harvard, where scientists found that people with no prior experience to meditation who engaged in 27 minutes of mindfulness-based meditation practices for eight weeks, what they saw was a thickening in several regions of the brain and a shrinkage in the amygdala, the alarm bell of our brain. The region, yeah, that produces anxiety and stress. And that, that is exciting. They also looked at subjects in the long-term meditator category, seven to nine years of practice. And they noticed an increase of gray matter in several areas of the brain, including the auditory, sensory, and prefrontal cortex. And this is great. What startled scientists the most was that 50-year-old meditators in that same study had the same amount of gray matter as 25-year-old meditators. So the question now is, is it possible to keep your brain young with meditation? So the neuroscience is really helping people see the value 
of meditation as a means of improving quality of life. Again, attention span increasing, stability, the ability to concentrate, and even around the physiological, physical healing piece. There's a lot of studies done showing that with meditation, there's a decreased rate of metabolism accompanied by a decrease in heart rate, breathing rates, and where there was previously elevated blood pressures, there's a decrease. So all that contributes to the decreased risk of hypertension and stroke. So there's a lot of great science out there. It seems like it's being published in the journals all the time, and they're continuing to be very interested in this field. So there's going to be more. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And I'm sure we, it's well-suited, right? For Western cultures where we, re- we want them. <laughs> give us the cold, hard evidence, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess kind of in a similar vein, you've touched on attention already a, a bit. So let's talk a little bit more about how most of us pay attention or maybe don't pay attention throughout our day because so much of our mental space feels like is in the past or in the future, worrying about what's already happened or worrying about what's to come. And and so we may not always be, you know, in the present moment as much as we would want to be, as much as we maybe think that we are. Yeah. This is very much the trouble of our minds. They call it puppy mind. (laughs) So you get the new puppy and it's all over the place and it's hard to control the puppy. And so this can be our mind is that when it's unchecked and we're not in control of it, that mind just wanders all over the place in the future, it wanders in the past. And we find that it's, it's not in the now as much as it could be. And it's interesting too, the past, it can either be in the category of a positive or negative. When we reflect in the past, we're either in a state of nostalgia, remembering the good old days, or we're in a state of guilt. I suck. I should have, I could have, and I didn't. Or we're moving into the future of fantasy and dreams, which could be positive (laughs) or negative. It's some fear awaiting for something to happen that hasn't even arrived yet. So this present moment is the practice of really just coming back. And one of the greatest gateways to the present moment is our body. So if we can wake up out of our heads, Tara Brock calls it our virtual reality where we can get stuck up there just all day being in our heads. And unfortunately, it's all connected. So the thoughts that we're having, especially the negative ones, they're producing chemical cocktails that are literally being filtered down into the body. And then the body feels that chemical of cortisol or adrenaline, and then it repeats the thought because you feel it in the body. So then you feel it and then you think the thought again, and it produces more chemistry in the body. And we just get stuck on this loop of feeling and thinking and feeling and thinking. And so to get out of that loops, we can just, oh, remember our body, like get into like, can you feel your body where it's touching surfaces? Can you feel the air on your skin, or maybe just noticing the objects that you see with your eyes, the sounds we hear 
with our ears. And this brings us right back here. And as we can feel into that more, it really helps make the moment become more magical. We realize this moment, we can just be here for it. It's an okay moment. This moment's okay. We have a lot of okay moments, actually, that we're not noticing because we're, we're up here in our thoughts, come back right into this body, right into this breath with that curiosity, the interest, the kindness. It can really help wake us up and right back here where life is happening and we can come back to more of a homeostasis in our bodies. One thing I'm thinking about is how we, again, you mentioned virtual reality in a different context, but here we are virtually taking together. But we are, of course, obviously living our, our lives increasingly through technology and, and also in a context of a culture where being busy is basically viewed as a virtue. And there's a lot of social expectation in our work lives, personal lives to be always accessible. So how do you feel like our digital lives and mindfulness relate to each other? Yeah, digital is here to stay. And it's a blessing, isn't it? In a lot of ways, and it can be a curse as well. And so I think it's, again, coming back to these principles of mindfulness of how are we using the digital? Are we overusing our digital? Is it Mm -hmm. taking away from quality of life? Or is it adding to the quality of life? And I know for me, I have to be mindful of how many times that I pick up my smartphone. It's such a habit. And I looked it up and it says anywhere between 58 to 96 times on average, we're picking up our phone a day, which equates to every 10 minutes. Right. Right. And and then we're looking at it and it's, oh, and we got to check our email or text. We got to look at the news. We got to check social media. And so our attention spans are getting shorter. And with a culture, like you said, that's addicted to being busy. And not only that, speed, this rushing around and doing. And I think that was one of the, one of the benefits that many people, including myself, liked about the pandemic is we were forced to slow down and That was great to just pause, take a moment. Do we really need to be this busy? Is it adding to our lives or is it taking away from our lives? And so what happens is when we get triggered and we're in that busyness and we're in the digital, we just keep going. We don't take that moment to pause and to notice what are the feelings that are arising It's actually uncomfortable to pivot attention off the digital back onto ourselves to be with something that hurts or be with something that's uncomfortable. It's way easier to just go on social media or check our emails instead of being with what needs to be seen or what needs to be connected to. And so there we go. We just... it down, we push it away, we ignore it, and it isn't going anywhere. We just start wearing more of that on our persona. We wear that on our organs. We're wearing that on our breath. So our breath is now (gasps) jagged. The motility of our organs are beating to the busyness. They're beating to speed. They're beating to digital. 
that's not natural. It's, we're supposed to be beating with nature and the way nature intended us to do. It's a real practice, this mindfulness to bring it here. Every moment is a moment to be mindful. How are we using our digital? When we go that reflex to pick the phone up, can we catch ourselves in the middle of the reflex and pause and feel the discomfort of wanting to grab the phone and look at it? Can we just pause and maybe not check it? Maybe we are okay not to check it every 10 minutes, just check it every 30 minutes. Maybe that would be like... Yeah, start somewhere. Yeah, start somewhere. So. so I guess threaded throughout some of this, what I'm hearing is that a lot of us may need to essentially give ourselves a break maybe in more ways than one or to be more, I guess, gentle with ourselves, if you will. And what are kind of the myths or misunderstandings around that concept, this notion of self-compassion that you've mentioned already? Yeah, this is a wonderful practice that is misunderstood. And I have to say, like, even in this training that I've been so fortunate to marinate in with Tara Brock, I really opened up my understanding of what compassion is. So compassion, again, it's, it's a loaded word, just like mindfulness and meditation, overused, not really appreciated. Compassion is that we resonate with feelings of another, and then we want to respond to that. There's a response factor. So when there's self-compassion, it's the ability to tune into our own feelings, to feel the feels, resonate with them, and then respond to them. And so they did a poll on self-compassion, asking people, you know, what they thought about it. And they realized there were five misconceptions that came up every time, the same five. And the first was, oh, it's selfish to bring compassion to ourselves. It's, it's selfish, it's narcissistic to be nice to ourselves. Um, and the second one, it's a pity party. No one likes anybody having a pity party. The third, weakness. Self-compassion is going to make you weak. And the males especially did not like the idea of feeling weak and soft. Self-indulgence. People believe self-compassion is about being nice to yourself and giving yourself whatever it is you want. So lots of pleasure, lots of ice cream, (laughs) if you will. And the last one, which is the number one fear of self-compassion or misunderstanding was that it would undermine your motivation and if you were compassionate, if you gave yourself a break or soft on yourself, that you would lose your drive and you wouldn't achieve your goals. So better to criticize yourself and keep going and work yourself long hours. <laughs> but now we know self-compassion is no longer a nice idea. It's again, neuroscience, well-researched with over 1,200 articles of hard empirical data to show that these fears of self-compassion are false. And so people who understand what self-compassion is, and there's three components that really qualify for self-compassion. And the first is mindfulness. It's the ability to hold, to be with the discomfort and pain to the degree that you can. So there's always that factor to consider to the degree that you can and not get carried away with it or avoiding it. The second piece is is the, the extra kindness to treat oneself the same way we would treat a, a good friend or our own child. If a child came to us, 
we wouldn't say, oh, I don't have time for this right now. Or we wouldn't push them out, or slam the door in their face. Just kind of like what we do to our own selves when we're triggered. It's like, nope, don't have time to deal with it. So we just ignore it. And the third piece, so we have mindfulness, the kindness. And the third piece, which is really powerful, is the shared humanity piece of this. And it's really important for distinguishing self-compassion from self-pity is the acknowledgement that the human experience isn't perfect. All people are imperfect. Uh, we lead lives. We make mistakes. We're flawed. So just like me, others encounter challenges and hardships. And this realization helps one to stop over-identifying with the situation and realize that there's a greater sense of connection and belonging. And so this self-compassion now can be used to help heal what's happening. And I love going back to Gandhi, but he says, you know, be the change you wish to see. So if we want to see a a peaceful world, we've got to start with ourselves and bringing, taking a break every once in a while and giving ourselves that nurturing and care that we really deserve. And then we can offer it back out. We can extend it back out to the people in our lives, to our communities, to our culture. And especially with the way our culture or society is at the moment, I mean, how beneficial would that be if if we were all better equipped to to do that and the benefit that might have for us as a community, I can only imagine. So as a neuropsychologist myself, I often will make recommendations about these techniques, you know, around meditation or mindfulness to patients that are struggling, you know, things like sleep or frustration tolerance or anxiety. How much of the benefit of that do you think relates to increasing somebody's sense of being in control so to speak, or having more control over how they feel or improving our ability to self-soothe. I think it has a lot to do with our ability to take care of ourselves. I know I never got the message when I was growing up how to self-regulate or how to self-soothe. They don't teach it in school. I think they're starting to now, like with my own children, I, I know they're importing a lot of mindfulness into the classroom, which is really exciting. But the underlying message for many of us was work harder and longer. It's all outside of ourselves. So if we slow down, we might fall apart. So just keep keep going. So this ability to take control for ourselves, well, it means you have to pull out and pull out of the world for a little bit and learn some strategies to slow down and then actually do it. And pulling out of the world, I think is the the hiccup for people because the constant thing that I hear is I don't have time. Oh, meditation's great. I just, I don't have time. But if we could just create the time and we know the practices, we have the tools, that's that sense of being in control of our lives now. And we learn these abilities to self-soothe. They're self-validating. So just even experiencing that, you know, they say 21 days to make a habit. You just take 21 days, if you can, to just 10 minutes a day, pull out and have that validate your experience. We re-enter back into the world more down-regulated. It's very empowering. It's very empowering. And so 
the key is to find what works and then keep at it. So once a month doesn't work. Consistency is the key, a little and often, and make it become a part of your life. And that that's agency that puts you in control and life is more congruent, more harmonious. So similar to physical exercise and medication, it doesn't work if you're not taking it on a daily or regular basis, right? So we're going to have a lot of great resources in the show notes, but for listeners who want to take the next step to learn more about this, where would you direct them first? I would direct them to my own teachers, Tara Brock and Jack Cornfield. There's a lot of other teachers in mindfulness. They're just fantastic. There's so many resources. Tara Brock's website itself is fantastic. She has meditations that you can sample her lectures. And that's how I got started with Tara was there's no obligation. Like If you want to, you just listen in. And if it resonates, great. And if it doesn't, great, you know, but there's no obligation. And just listening into her wisdom and experience is very profound. And for me, there's something about her. She knows how to interject humor with her talks. So it doesn't get so heavy. It's bite-sized pieces. And Jack Cornfield's, and Jack Cornfield was Tara Brock's teacher. So it's great to see them together or separately, but he's such a very loving spirit and his resources, his website has a plethora of resources. And from there that you can even just go onto their website and they have many other teachers and resources. So it branches out from there and that would be a great place to start. Also in the notes is Kristen Neff, who is the world's most recognized leader in self-compassion. So if you wanted to learn more about self-compassion, she's in wonderful resource as well. Perfect. Great. Well, Jen, thank you again so much for being here and sharing your wealth of knowledge. I could talk to you. I feel like I could talk to you about this all day, but you have also generously or graciously agreed to guide us as a group here through a five minute exercise. So listeners, I'm going to do our usual goodbyes right now and then leave us in Jen's hands for just the next few minutes. If you can if you can stay with us. So thank you for joining me and being part of the conversation by rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and send your comments, questions, and ideas for brain health topics that you would like to hear about. We'd love to hear from you. To email ads or for more information about the NAM Foundation and neuropsychology, visit namfoundation.org. With that, take it away, Jen. Thank you. So we'll do a short five-minute meditation here. And so as we're ready, we'll want to just have a moment to check in with our seat, if you're sitting. And from the, the seat, we might press or just sense where the body is touching surfaces. So if the feet are on the floor, you can sense the feet, the soles of the feet touching the surfaces, if they're in shoes or the floor, maybe the legs where they're touching surfaces. And then just a little length up through the crown of the head, the shoulders rolling back and down, and sensing this physical body, maybe where the air is touching the skin, 
and then noting the breath and perhaps noting the breath in the nostrils right now might notice the cool air as it moves through the nostrils. We also might note the warm air as it exits or leaves the nostrils. And so just noting the breath at the nostrils. And we can drop attention now right into the chest and noticing here the chest and letting the chest be an anchor for the breath as we inhale, noting sensations in the chest on exhalation, maybe noting how the chest relaxes or the volume in the chest decreases and then dropping attention down into the belly. We might experience our breath here for a few rounds, just noting on the inhale, how the belly expands and on the exhale, how the belly relaxes. And then just noting where is it that is most pleasant for you to experience your breath? It might be at the nostrils, the chest, or the belly. And wherever for you, wherever it is for you, that it feels most pleasant to anchor the attention there on that place. And then if thoughts arise or we get distracted, to gently, kindly come back to where you feel the breath most distinctly, most pleasantly. So we'll be here for another minute in the silence and then bringing attention right into the space of the chest again, right into our own heart space. You might sense the sides of the chest, the inside walls of the chest. You might sense your own heart beating into that space. It's the inquiry of what really matters for you right now. What's most important? What is it that your heart desires or yearns for? Listening in, what's most important at this time for you? Perhaps see yourself living that, not as some faraway dream, but living that here and now. May that be your inner compass today. May your heart guide you to this next moment. Thank you so much for having me on your show. A very loving namaste and aloha.